We've been talking about marriage, right? And maybe everybody saw the title in the newsletter this week, and I don't know. They just said, well, we're not going there today. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, anyway, hallelujah. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I spoke, I've been speaking about marriage over the last two weeks, and uh, in the first week I spoke how to, about how to build a lasting marriage, and then I spoke last week about the meaning of marriage. And so that scripture in Ephesians chapter 5, that passage, we actually addressed that last week. If you missed that, go and listen to the podcast because uh, we, spoke, we, we dwelt on that passage of scripture in Ephesians 5, the meaning of marriage. And today I want to talk about hope. Who knows that hope is important for marriage? <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> Whoa! All right. Hope is important for marriage. In a way, every single marriage is built on hope, right? People get married because they hope that they're going to be able to build a life together with this other person that's going to be, you know, a more satisfying life, a more fulfilling life, a more uh, wonderful life. It's, it's going to be better to do life with this person than life alone, right? People get married expecting that their marriage is going to be successful. Am I right? No one gets married saying to themselves, hey, let's get married. You know, I think that this marriage is probably going to fail. We're probably going to really destroy one another's lives, but we're not doing anything on Saturday, so let's go get married. Nobody, nobody says anything like that. Marriages are born in hope. They're born in hope. But you know what? Somewhere along the way, nearly every marriage goes through a period of disillusionment. Life does not work out the way that we hoped it would or that we dreamed it would. What people hoped would happen in their marriage is not happening. And so the things that they wanted in this relationship are just, are just not materializing. And often what happens in marriage is that anger and sadness can replace hope. And so when we hear story after story about troubled marriages and destroyed dreams and people facing a choice of grimly enduring this marriage, you know, or, or giving up on it entirely, you know, when I, we just we feel like we want to sink under, under a weight of hopelessness because you see so, so much of this and we see it in the media almost every day. Well, I'm hoping to kind of be a source of hope today. I say kind of because, um, well, you'll see by the end. So I want to I just, I want to kind of be a source of hope today. Because I do really believe that relationships can change for the better. Marriages can improve. Attitudes, perceptions can be altered, right? With God's help, miracles can occur. So rather than enduring a lifelong prison sentence, people can have a vastly improved relationship. Now, in a community like ours, we're made up of a lot of different people at different stages of life, and some have been through marriage, some are in marriage, some are hoping to get married, some are young, some are old. And so we're all at these different places of life, but for those who are in marriage relationships within our church community, there might be marriages within our church who are struggling a little bit. They may even be in trouble. And that's something that can happen even in committed um, uh, Christian relationships, right, where, where somebody's committed their life to, to God and, they, and they're following Christ, e even in that kind of marriage relationship, trouble can come. And so, I don't know, maybe you've been thinking about giving up, or maybe you've been toying with the idea of like, hey, we need to take a break, we've got to separate. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you've even been thinking about, hey, it's just time to, to, to end this, getting a divorce. 
So what do you do when you find yourself in a troubled marriage? Well, like I said, I believe it's possible to recover hope for a relationship. It doesn't matter what's happened. It doesn't matter how much water has gone under the bridge. Marriages in trouble do not have to break up. It's possible to have God's blessing on your marriage. It's possible to rebuild your marriage. And so that's why I've called today's talk, Hope for Troubled Marriages. Okay, so in talking about recovering hope, right, believing that God can work a miracle, I want us to look at one of the great miracle passages in the Bible. And that's found in John chapter 11. If you've got a Bible, you can go and follow along in John chapter 11. We're not going to read every single verse, and I've got some on the screen. But uh, if you've got a Bible, it, you might want to take some notes this morning. So in John chapter 11, th this gospel rec recounts this miraculous event of Jesus raising up his friend Lazarus from the dead. And Lazarus was a really dear friend of Jesus. He, he, he had died, he'd got sick and he had died. And he'd actually been already been put in the tomb. He'd been in the grave for four days. And Jesus came along and raised him from the dead. And so what I want to do today is apply a few of the lessons from that miracle to the raising up of a sick marriage or the raising up of a dead marriage. Okay? So in John chapter 11, if we read the first three verses, uh, it tells us that there was a certain man who was ill. His name was Lazarus. He was from the village of Bethany. Uh, and that John tells us that Mary and Martha were his sisters. And then he reminds us that Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and uh, had wiped his feet with her hair. So we go, oh, this, this is that family. And so it was her brother Lazarus who was ill. And so John tells us that the sisters sent a message to Jesus. Lord, him, he whom you love is ill. So Bethany was a couple of miles away from Jerusalem. Mary and Martha are over here with their brother who's really, really sick. And they send word to Jesus that Lazarus is, is, is he's, he's not at all well. He might even be close to dying. Now, Mary and Martha do something that should be a model for all of us here this morning. It's a great model for what we should do when we are sick, right? Or... or to apply to what we're talking about today, it's a great model for us to apply when our marriages are sick. What did Mary and Martha do? They sent a message. They called out to the Lord. They called out for help. They turned to Jesus knowing that he could revive their sick brother, knowing that he could work a miracle in their brother's life. And I think that this is where many, many Christian folk make an enormous error. Instead of crying out to God to restore their marriages, they become embittered and frustrated and eventually get to a place of hopelessness because just like Lazarus, many marriages can get sick. Even the marriages of those who call themselves Christians. And so let's look at why marriages get sick. Why do marriages get sick? What is it that brings sickness into that kind of relationship? Now, there are probably a bunch of reasons why a marriage can get sick. But I think that three of the biggest reasons for marriages becoming sick have to do with anger, communication, and unattainable ideals. 
And so I want to just work through those three points just for a moment. So the first one I want to talk about is unresolved anger. Why do marriages get sick? I think one of the big ones is unresolved anger. You know what often happens in, in, in marriages is that the hurts or the, the disagreements or the differences between that husband or between spouses, right, um, it causes a simmering anger. It's just simmering there, and it doesn't go away unless you actually deal with it. And so if you're letting the sun go down on your anger every day, and you're letting that anger simmer, it's going to bring sickness to your marriage. And when a marriage is clouded by unresolved anger, the arguments are going to become more toxic. The arguments are going to become more volatile in their language and their tone. And that is going to produce absolutely no good within that marriage relationship. What it's actually going to do is it's just going to drive a deeper wedge of division within that marriage. Now we talk about forgiveness. What a beautiful word. What a beautiful concept in Scripture. Huh? And it's really easy to talk about forgiveness. It's really easy to talk about you having to forgive someone than actually applying it, actually doing it. Isn't it? I mean, forgiveness is a beautiful word. And forgiveness is great when you're on the receiving end of it. But when you have to give forgiveness, man, forgiveness is an ugly word. Ugly. But in marriage... You can't experience a healthy, thriving relationship with your spouse if you keep replaying in your head what it is that he or she did to anger you. You actually have to eject that offense. You've got to get it out. You've got to replace it with love. The only way to do that is to release your spouse, is to let your spouse off the hook, right? Because that's what we do with unforgiveness. We put them on the hook. We've got to let them off the hook. We've got to release them, right? Release them from whatever that hurt or that pain is that they, that they caused you. You've got to turn that offense over to God, and you've got to replace those thoughts of anger and hurt and pain with thoughts of thanksgiving. Gratitude that God has given you the faith and the ability to be released from the stronghold of unforgiveness. You don't want a stronghold of unforgiveness in your life. Because at the end of the day, that unforgiveness is only going to take you down. It's going to take you down. So sometimes marriages get sick because of unresolved anger. Sometimes marriages get sick because of unlearned communication skills. Being able to communicate is essential for a good marriage. Can I get an amen? It's essential for a good marriage. Now, the thing is that most of us are not that great. Most of us are not brilliant communicators. And so if we're going to be people who communicate well, we've got to learn. We've got to learn how to communicate. We've got to learn how to listen well. We've got to learn how to speak clearly. We've got to learn how to express our needs in a fashion that doesn't sound attacking or accusatory. Because a marriage will never ever thrive on drive-through communication. You know what I mean by drive-through communication? Any of you ever been into a McDonald's and got a drive-through order at McDonald's? And that little voice comes in the box, Welcome to McDonald's. Can I take your order? 
You know, and you say, yes, can I, can I have a cheeseburger, you know, two quarter pounders, two fries, and, and, and two, uh, three Diet Cokes. And the little voice comes back and says, yeah, I got that, two cheeseburgers, a quarter pounder, three fries, and two Diet Cokes. And you say, no, no, it's a cheeseburger, two quarter pounders, two fries, and three Diet Cokes. And the person comes back and says, yeah, I got that, a cheeseburger, three quarter pounders, two fries, and two Cokes. And by that time, you really must get out of your car and rip the box off and get in there and throttle the person. Can you not get my order? Anybody had anything like that? I always go, I just don't think they understand my accent when I go into, into McDonald's. And so a lot of marital communication can be like that kind of frustration that you experience at McDonald's. Thank goodness they got those screens that come up. No, it's wrong. It's wrong. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's just me. But, you know, sometimes it's like this, the communication thing. A guy comes home from work, you know, in the evening and he's thinking to himself, well, you know, I'd love to go out with my wife for dinner tonight. And he says, he says, he comes in and he says, <laughs> and he says to his wife, he says, what should we do for dinner? And what she hears is, when will dinner be ready? <laughs> Not what are you cooking? When will dinner be ready? Right? And so, because he's saying, what shall we do for dinner tonight? And she, she's hearing, when will dinner be ready? She says, why is it always my job to make dinner? Yeah? And, and, and what he hears is like an attack. He feels like, why are you being so negative? He says, he says, it's not always your job to make dinner. I made dinner last week. And she looks at him and says, bringing home hamburgers is not making dinner. <laughs> and so she says, well, just forget it. You know? um, and, and it's like the little ruffle, you know. And he's like, well, I don't want to go out to dinner with you anyway. And now she's really confused because she didn't hear him say anything about going out. So she says, you never said anything about going out tonight. And he gets really defensive and he says, yes, I did. I asked you if you wanted to go out and immediately you got nasty. And she says, I got nasty? You never said anything about going out. And the husband says, I did. And she says, you didn't. And he says, I did. And she says to him, you're never wrong, are you? You're never wrong. Is, that, is it only in my marriage or is, does that sound familiar? So, so many marriages could be improved by, by couples simply learning communication skills, right? How, how, learning how to communicate in a non-frustrating way. Learning... <laughs> take a deep breath, Pat. Yeah. Sometimes we've got to do that. That's what we should be doing. Like, Lord, help me now with my dear wife, right? And she's praying the same prayer, help me with my dear husband. But we've got to learn how to resolve problems in marriage relationships without escalating them we've got to learn how to speak and we've got to learn how to listen so sometimes marriages get sick because of unlearned communication skills sometimes marriages get sick because one or both of the people in that marriage relationship have unattainable ideals you know um, like people get married and they think to themselves we're never going to have an argument or my husband should be able to read my mind and know what's going wrong without me having to say anything. <laughs> or my wife should look exactly the same as she did on the day that we got married, despite the fact that she's had three children and we've been married for 25 years. Or that we should be as passionate as we were on our honeymoon. You know, that our passionate... 
Our passion should never have its ups and downs. You know, unattainable ideals. Or, 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 or my, my husband should make as much money as my successful father made. Right? And I should be provided for in the same way as my father provided for me when I was growing up, even though my husband's a school teacher. You know, unattainable ideals. And so one of the issues of recovering hope for a troubled, a troubled marriage is often the willingness to lay down unattainable dreams. You see, it's not unattainable to believe that you can have really successful communication in your marriage. It's not unattainable to believe that your spouse can't change and learn not to be so angry or so negative. It's not unattainable to believe that you could be happy even if those ideals that you had are never met. That you could actually learn to love your wife even if she's put on some weight. Or you can learn to love your husband even though he's gone bald and he's not very exciting and he doesn't earn much money. See, unattainable ideals. And I'm telling you, if unattainable ideals are not dealt with in a marriage, it opens the door to that sickness creeping into that relationship. And, and, and the thing about sickness is that it can lead to death, right? That's the tragedy. Sick marriages often die. That's what happened with Lazarus. Lazarus got sick and Lazarus died. By the time Jesus had got to Lazarus, Lazarus was already in the tomb. He was in the grave. He was dead. And so sick marriages, just like Lazarus, can sometimes take a turn for the worse, right? Before there's any chance of rescuing that marriage, it, it dies. You know, one, the wife or the husband's already gone to the lawyers, right? They're already talking to them like, I'm out of here. They, they ref, there's no forgiveness. They stubbornly refuse to move back in with their spouse. Their bags are packed. They refuse to engage. There's, there's no chance at reconciliation. No, no attempt to talk about it. So marriages can get sick. And then if that sickness is not dealt with, sick marriages can die. And so how do sick marriages die? How do sick marriages die? Well, I'm going to cover a couple of things over here from what I think are factors that lead to a marriage that's not well going to a place of death. Sometimes marriages die as a result of unhelpful supporters. Unhelpful supporters, right? So what we see in the story, and we don't have time to read through the entire chapter this morning, but what we see with Lazarus in that whole scenario is a bunch of people in the picture. There's relatives and friends, right, who are getting in the way of Jesus being able to easily work a miracle. Jesus' own disciples got in the way. To an extent, Mary and Martha got in the way. Certainly the mourners who were around that tomb were getting in the way. And sick marriages can be made worse and even sometimes die because of the people who are around that marriage who I would call unhelpful supporters. See, sometimes those unhelpful supporters extend positive support to like one of the spouses. They're a positive supporter and so they approach the wife or they approach the husband because they've had a long-term friendship with them. And essentially what they're saying is like, hey, we're going to listen to you. We're going to pray for you. We're going to support you. We're going to care for you no matter what. You know, is there something we can do for you now? You come and cry on our shoulder, right? We're not going to judge you. There's going to be no confrontation. There's going to be no correction. We're here for you. 
And, and I think that speaks to something about our world. It speaks to something about the culture that we live in because we live in an age of non-judgmental non supportiveness. And so what we do very, very often, and in fact too often, is we simply open up our arms to the hurting and we say, here we are. No judgment. No confrontation. And you know, that kind of non-judgmental positive support by friends or a couple or a group or a counselor or parents can be the most corrosive thing that can happen in, in, in a couple's marital bond. Because Christians... A person who walks away from their marriage vows and turns their back on everything that they've said they stand for should have feelings of guilt and shame. Guilt and shame and embarrassment and depression and humiliation and low self-esteem are the natural consequences of doing something that God hates. And the Bible teaches us over and over again that sin yields unpleasant consequences. In Romans 8 verse 13, Paul tells us, he says, if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. And so what he's saying is that you will, you will lose your peace because of that sin. You will destroy your joy. You will erase your self-esteem. Right? This is part of the reason why God in his love so, so strongly warns us against sinning. He warns us against throwing in the towel and, and against breaking our vows and, and promises because he knows that sin is like sulfuric acid. It, 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 it begins to corrode and eventually it can kill us. And so what do these non-judgmental supporters do to someone who's splitting, who's saying, I'm out of this marriage relationship and professes to be a follower of Christ and they say, I'm out of here. What do these non-judgmental non supporters do do to someone who's saying no to God. You know what they do? They come along and they get in God's way by easing somebody else's pain. They get in God's way. They say, yeah, 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 let me, let me lower the pain. Let me, let me help you through this. You know, give me a little, I'll give you a little bit of support. I'll be, I'll be a comfort to you. I'm not going to really talk to you about that. I'm just going to be here for you. Now, please just understand me. I'm not saying that there's no room for friendship when someone has sinned. That's not what I'm saying. I'm also not saying that every single time that you have contact with a person who's walking away from their marriage vows, that that contact should be confrontational. That is not what I'm saying. But what I am calling for is integrity in your relationship with a person who's walking away or throwing in the towel. Where time after time, you're coming to that person and you're saying to them, listen, I love you. I love you, but what you're doing is wrong. It's wrong. And you're hurting yourself and you're hurting God by doing what you're doing. God actually hates what you're doing. And you're hurting your spouse. You're hurting your children. You see, the pain of sin, the pain of depression, the pain of guilt, what it often does with someone who's committed their life to God is that eventually if they get into that spot, it'll begin to drive them back towards God. The fact is that a lot of us are so willful that, 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 that we will not turn back to God unless we get into a place where we really, really hurt, where there's really, really no other answers, where it's really at the lowest of the low and nobody can do anything. It's only in that place that we begin to say, maybe I need to check back in with God. 
And so God will often use the painful consequences of sin to draw us back to himself. I think one of the best examples of scripture is the prodigal son, who in his willful walking away got to a place of complete and utter despair in the mud pit of that pigsty. And he said, life with my father is better than this. And he had to get to that place before he came to the realization that I need to change things. And God will use that, those kinds of circumstances to bring people back to himself. And sometimes we can get in the way of God. And, and again, just to be clear, I'm not saying be a condemner. I'm also not saying be a finger pointer. We've got no right to, be, to condemn people or point fingers at them. I'm just saying that we as Christians, as mature Christians, need to make sure that um, our friendship with the person who's bailing out of a marriage is based on truth. So we've got to be careful not to get in God's way of how sometimes God will bring people back towards him. And that's what positive church community will do. That's what positive people will do. There's going to be a very clear discussion about what it actually means to break vows. And, and there will be some challenging of people who want to walk away without trying to make it work. Negative community will make things worse, right? I mean, you know, sometimes, it's, sometimes you get people around you who are friends and, and, and they bitter about their own marriage. So they just stoke it on. They stoke the fire. Or maybe they got separated or divorced. And now they're going, well, you know, I've, I've been through it. You can do it. You know? And so they almost validate their choice. Sometimes negative community can come from your family who were opposed to the marriage in the be to begin with. And now they're going, yeah, told you so. Yeah, now they're going to stick in those knives and say things about that person. You know, because now's their opportunity you know, your, your mom or your father or your siblings are saying, we told you so, we told you so. And they're going to get in as much as they can. You get that negative swirl. And listen, we mustn't forget that there, there is an entire industry that is supported by unhappy marriages. Marital counselors and lawyers, some of those people are going to do everything in their power to drive you towards a divorce because it's in their interest. That's how they earn their living. And so what happens is that negative swirl begins to form around the person who's having trouble in their marriage and that negative community around them, whether it's their friends or their parents, you know, they just begin to circle and then they begin to magnify the supposed flaws of your spouse. They begin to remind you of all of their sins. They begin to remind you of all of the stupid things they've ever done, all the mistakes that they've made. They may even begin to call your husband or your wife that you're estranged from bad names, names that you would never ever use in a million years, but they begin to talk, to talk about them in that way. And so that negativity in the environment gets so strong that the person who's, 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 who's walked away begins to get the message really, really clearly. Because that's what they're listening to. I'd be the biggest fool to go back to my husband. I'd be the biggest fool to go back to my wife. I've got to go through with this divorce. right? Everyone's telling me that we should never have gotten married to begin with. Unhelpful supporters can sometimes cause a sick marriage to die. Another one is that people opt out of community. You know, sometimes people are in a church, a church like this, where I hope we would be the kind of people who prefer truth-telling in relationships, where we're real with each other. That's the kind of church Renew needs to be. That's the kind of Christian community we need to be. And sometimes people opt out of that community. Because they don't want to be told the truth. And it always strikes me as so contradictory, you know, when, when couples um, begin their marriage. Because when they come together, normally they throw a big party, don't they? 
Right? They open up their marriage to the whole world. We're getting married. Everybody knows that you're getting married. Aunts that you haven't seen for 20 years come to the wedding. Your cousins who live in another country come to the wedding. People who you work with that you don't really even like, you invite them to your wedding. I mean, you know, friends of parents that you don't even know, they're at the wedding, right? You want your church pastor to bless you. You want the pastor to counsel you and pray for you. And so the wedding day, the entrance into marriage is a very public affair. But when it comes to leaving the marriage, suddenly the marriage, the doors are closed. Suddenly it's a very, very private affair. People will go, how dare you remind me of my wedding vows? What right has the church to stick its nose into my business? This is no one else's business. What's, this is my marriage. It's a private matter. What right do you have to speak into my life? And I've got to tell you, as Christians who are part of a biblical community, to me that's hypocrisy. That's contradiction. You have everyone, the church, family, friends, get involved at the beginning, but when a person wants to bail out of that marriage, they say, don't hold me to my very public vows that I made. Don't hold me to that covenant vow that I made before God and witnesses. Stay out. And so often when we want blessing, we want to invite the whole world in. But when we want to sin, we say, leave me alone. So sometimes people opt out of community. And another reason is that sometimes people get selfish, right? Selfishness is a big one as to why marriages move from sickness to death. I'm not going to spend too much time on selfishness, but we all know what this is, right? I mean, I'm sure you've heard it. People get into a, a state of sickness, and then they start saying things like, I need my independence. I need my freedom. I, I, I need to pursue my career. This is holding things up. I need, you know, they meet someone. I need to pursue this opportunity for, for my one opportunity for love in life. I've got to leave you. I need to recapture my youth. I need, to, I need to get my head together. I need to find myself. You know, so many reasons for what is just selfishness, pure and simple, because it's all about you. It's, it's your way. It's your view, and that's all that matters. You know, if you think about the church, we've had such an unraveling of marriages in, in the church in recent decades, but for almost 20 centuries in the church, Marriage was considered to be forever. There was a rock-solid commitment to stay in this, to persevere, to endure no matter what. And so people make their vows for better or for worse, right? In life and in death. Right? I'm going to stay married to you till, until death parts us. And now what happens is people make their vows you know, until they grow apart or until they can't communicate anymore, until... They find someone better or until the passions fade. And so it seems to me like a lot of folk who are in this place, it's like they've lost their ability to say forever. Forever. The most corrosive thing that can happen in the marriage is refusing to settle in your heart that this is forever. Forever, no matter what. And so the only way to make a marriage last is not to have an exit door. <laughs> it's like to throw away that key, like build a big wall in front of that exit door. Honey, we're going through a difficult time right now. You don't like me and I don't like you, but we're in this and we're hitched and that's it. 
You're not going anywhere. We're going to work this out. Doesn't matter how much pressure, doesn't matter how, much, how difficult it is, doesn't how many, matter how many days you don't speak to me for, or I don't speak to you for, doesn't matter how many times I don't make dinner or you don't make dinner. We're in this forever. <laughs> doesn't matter how hard it gets. See, I think, I think, and I'm talking to Christians here this morning. I think that one of the things that people have lost is the capacity to think very clearly about what is right and what is wrong. And again, the world in which we live, the culture in which we live is, is very feelings-based, right? Very, you know, we, we make decisions based on our present feelings. So somebody's going through a difficult time in their marriage and says, don't you, don't you get it? Don't you understand how I feel? I feel unhappy. I feel hopeless. I've, I've seen that person at work and I've met them and I feel passion for someone else. How can you challenge me to stay in this marriage when I feel so depressed? And people whose lives are based on what the Bible teaches are not going to be led by their feelings. Instead, they're going to base their life decisions on what is right and wrong. They're going to base their life decisions on what God has said. So I might feel passion for this other person. But it would be wrong of me to pursue a relationship with that person because I'm married. And so because I am an honorable person, I will do what is right. Or I might feel like the fires in my marriage have died, but because I'm an honorable, honorable person and I'm going to do it God's way, I'm going to work in my marriage. I'm not going to um, drop those vows. I'm going to rekind work to rekindle the fire. Stop looking at me like that. Or I might feel disappointed about our financial situation, right? This is not what I hoped for. This is not what I dreamed for, but I, but I made a vow. And so it would be wrong of me to hurt my children and, and, and have them be shuttled between the father and I or the wife and I because I'm unhappy. It's, it's quite rare in this culture for people not to be controlled by their feelings and simply to choose to do what is right. But I want to tell you, when you choose to do what is right, God's plan for you is not to lock you up in a prison cell of a marriage and lock the door and throw away the key. <laughs> That's not God's plan for your marriage. God wants to move you from death in your marriage to faith in His miracle working power. Right? That with God, nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible, including a revitalized marriage, including a change in your heart and a change in your spouse's heart, a change in your behavior. God wants to revitalize that marriage. He wants life in that marriage. God doesn't say it's forever, forever unhappiness. That's not God's plan. The story of the raising of, of Lazarus from the dead is also a story of raising faith from the dead. You know, the reason why people throw the towel in so often is because they lose their faith. They stop believing in change. They stop believing things can change. They become hopeless. So a marriage that was born in hope, somewhere along the line, loses its hope. And they, they, they can't see anything changing. But in this wonderful story in John chapter 11, you know, as much as it's a story about um, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, it's also a story about the recovery of hope. If we read verses 23 to 27, Jesus said to Martha, he said, your brother will rise again. Now I want you to note what Martha says to Jesus. 
So Jesus says, your brother's going to rise again. And she says, I know, I know. He's going to rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus looks at her and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, are going to live. And everyone who lives and believes in me is never going to die. You know, Jesus looking at Martha, he says, come on, how long have you been with me? He says, do you believe this? I mean, you've seen all these miracles. You've been traveling with me. And she says, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. <laughs> I'm going to give you the right answer. Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's come into the world. Let's drop down to verse 38. Jesus comes to the tomb. And John tells us that, again, he was deeply moved. It's a cave. There's a stone that's been laid across the entrance. And Jesus looks at it and he says, take away the stone. And who speaks up here? Martha. He's just spoken to her. Martha's been, but Lord, yeah, yeah. He's, he's been in there for four days. It's going to be a bad odor. You can't take away the stone, Lord. And Jesus, he must have been pretty frustrated by this time. He looks at her and he says, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? Isn't it amazing how far along this the, the faith scale we can go, right, without truly believing in God's capacity to do a miracle to raise the dead now. Right? Martha believes here for the future. She says, I know he's going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And she's right. Because you can't be a Christian without believing for the future, right? That in the future, because you placed your faith and your trust in Christ today, you're going to get to that place one day where you're going to hear God say, hey, I judge you to be righteous because of what my son did and because you put your faith in him, right? There's a not guilty verdict over your head. Come in. Welcome to paradise, right? And so she's got the right belief. You can't be a Christian unless you believe that for the future. So Martha not only believes that for the future, she believes what all Christians are called to believe. What all classical Orthodox Christians are called to believe. So I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God who's come into the world. So she has future faith. She has a classical Christian Orthodox faith. But when it comes to the ability to believe God for a miracle in the present crisis, Martha is just like a lot of us. Her faith doesn't stretch that far. You see, when Jesus says, take the stone away, she looks at him and she says, but Lord, he's been in there for four days. Four days. You see what I'm talking about here? That level of faith for the present situation? You can't take the stone away. Now, the Jews in, in Martha's day believed that the soul would depart the body um, after the body had been dead for three days, right? So that the soul would go to heaven on the fourth day. And so what Jesus was asking Martha to believe was this incredible miracle of the rejoining of the soul that had already uh, to the body um, that was still here on earth after, after like four days. Now, I'm not saying here this morning that the soul departs the body after three days. I, I believe according to the scriptures that Immediately we go to be with God, right? But that, that's what the Jews believed at that time. And so Martha was, was being asked to embrace what in her mind was an astounding miracle. 
It would have been an astounding miracle for Lazarus to come out, out of that grave. And folk, for anyone who's in a troubled marriage, we are called to believe like Martha in God's capacity to work an astounding miracle right now. That's what she was called to believe, and so are we called to believe the same when it comes to especially marriages that are sick or dying. And you might be in that marriage relationship, and you might be saying it's too far gone. You might be like Martha, where you're saying, you know, it's been four days or four years. The soul of this marriage has departed. We've tried, and nothing's been able to change. I can't love this man. I can't forgive this woman. But as Christians, we are called to exercise faith now in Christ's miracle-working power. So how do you know if your faith, if you have a, a faith capable, capable of that? How do you know if your faith is a genuine faith? Well, let me tell you. The first step towards regaining faith is a willed choice to do what God says you should do before you do anything at all. Because in the Bible, faith is never proven genuine Unless it can deal with a present crisis. Your faith is not genuine unless you can exercise that faith in a present crisis, in the squeeze of life. In, in a present crisis, that's when real genuine faith should emerge. Right? So if you're out of work, are you trusting God to provide? Are you trusting God for that door to open? Or are you being untruthful on your resume so that you can get the job? Oh, I'll change this, I'll change that, you know, it's just so that I can get my door in. Instead of trusting God and doing what you can do, but trusting God to open the door. If you're in a financial predicament and you need money, do you cheat on your income tax return so that you can maybe get a better rebate? Or do you believe that somehow God's going to make a way for you? If you feel a sexual urge, do you indulge it? Or do you believe that God's way of managing that is a better way? You see, if you can't handle a present crisis in faith, what inclines you to believe that when the next crisis comes along and another crisis will come along because we live in a broken, fallen world and the next crisis could, be, could involve your kids, it could involve your health, it could be a death of a parent, it could be a career problem. What makes you believe that if you can't exercise faith in the present crisis, what makes you believe that you're going to have the faith that it takes to sustain the next crisis that comes along in your life? How do we get that kind of faith? The faith that can weather a storm in marriage. Well, I think when you're sitting on the edge of obedience and disobedience, it's really good to just count the cost of disobedience, of disobeying. Because there are no winners in the splitting up of a couple or the splitting up of a marriage. There are no winners. Just ask anybody who's been through it. Marital separation and divorce are some of the most stressful things that anyone could ever experience. And so I think the first step towards regaining faith is a willed choice to do what God says you should do before you do anything at all. Here in John 11, Jesus says, he says, take away the stone to the people at the grave. And you say, well, why? It's because he wants people to obey him before they see something. Obey me and you're going to see a miracle. Take away the stone. Obey me and you're going to see a miracle. And Martha immediately objects. She says, you know, he's been in there for four days. Don't take away the stone. He says, he's looking for obedience. He says to Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And then they took away the stone. And so obedience. Folk, it's not hard for us to figure out what God's will is for our marriages. It's not as if the Bible teaches us that divorce 
is really complicated. Right? We make it complicated. When you read verses like Malachi 2.14 where, where the scripture says three words, God hates divorce. Or when we read like we read in Ephesians, where, what God's joined together, let no man separate. Or the fact that marriage is supposed to be a permanent institution. We need to understand that, that, a, that a marriage covenant, when your hands are placed on top of each other's hands, and you make that covenant vow to one another, it's really, really, really important before God. It's really important. Otherwise, we would not read words like God hates it when people break that. There are very few exceptions where God permits divorce. Flagrant sexual immorality, abandonment, and, and, and probably serious danger to a spouse or her children. That's the limit. Apart from those few exceptions in which God will entertain that divorce, it's not hard for us to discover what God's will is for our marriage. God's will is for us to stick at it. It's, it God's will is not to throw in the towel. God's will is not to give up, not to give in. And sometimes the step of faith to believe for your marriage begins with obedience. And obedience can be stimulated into renewed hope. So let me finish very quickly with a few simple thoughts. Sometimes couples need to just go and see a trained counselor who is going to stand for the marriage, right? Who's going to be able to speak truth to both the husband and the wife, but is going to stand for the marriage. Not just be a supporter who's going to let you cry on their shoulders and dull the pain. No, someone is going to stand for the marriage. And sometimes hearing the stories of other people who've been through that kind of situation, who've received help from God, those kinds of stories can help restore a marriage. Let me tell you, even if you're talking to people who have been through a separation or a divorce, there are lessons that we can learn. Sometimes hearing people's stories is, is an encouragement to us in our marriage. But I think one of the greatest encouragements to, to marriage is, 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 is having the faith to recognize that you can change. Actually, the atmosphere of your marriage can change. Whether your spouse joins you in it at the beginning or not, it still can change. You can't control what your spouse does, but you can, before God, choose to become a different person. You can, before God, choose to respond differently uh, when it comes to hostility. You can respond with a different attitude. You can respond by unpacking your bags. You can respond by dealing with your own contribution to the overall crisis. A really wonderful faith builder is seeing yourself change. But I actually think the biggest faith builder for a sick or dying marriage is recovering a clear view of Jesus Christ. A clear view, getting, a, getting your eyes fixed on Jesus. Throughout this chapter, Jesus keeps telling Martha, take your eyes, Martha, off of yourself. Take your eyes off of the crisis. Put your eyes on me. Fix your eyes firmly on me. Jesus says, Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Let's read verse 41 to 44 as we, as we wrap up. Jesus looked up and he said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And then he said this. And when he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. I think the strongest stimulation for our faith is to get our eyes on Jesus. 
Because the one who called Lazarus from the grave is the one who can speak a word to your marriage and call your marriage from the grave. And what more beautiful thing to hear than words that shatter hopelessness, where God speaks to your marriage and says, come back to life. Amen.